This is Andy, and welcome to the newest season of the podcast. We're so excited to be sharing some incredible behavioral therapy programs for you to learn about. And whether you're just interested in learning and getting educated, or whether you're actually evaluating some programs, this should truly be an interesting, inspirational, educational season. So if you have any questions, feel free, as always, to reach out to me at Andy at We'd really appreciate it if you gave us a good review on Apple Podcasts so it could reach more people. And sit back and enjoy. Hi, this is Andy, and welcome to our newest episode of the Wilderness Therapy and Residential Treatment Center Journey Podcast. Last episode, we spoke to Shane Gallagher of Wingate Wilderness Therapy. He and his team offer what he calls AWE, or an actual wilderness experience. If you haven't yet tuned in, I recommend you do. In June of 2020, which seems like a lifetime ago, a gentleman named Joe Feldman joined us on the podcast. It was season one, episode eight, for those of you who wish to look it up. On that amazing episode, Joe shared how he, as a parent of a child who went to wilderness therapy and residential treatment, pursued and sued his insurance company and was successful and recovered a significant portion of the cost. Having learned from that experience, he graciously shared with us 10 steps to help secure insurance coverage for mental health care, and he's been actively involved in that community. Since then, Joe and some other very smart people have done some great research and actually published an article recently in Psychology Today about having a medical necessity letter, which was one of those 10 steps. This, the link to that will be in the show notes here, uh, the article itself. Many providers are aware of this, having that medical necessity, but I've found that most parents aren't and need to be proactively aware so they can act accordingly. So without any further ado, I'm really glad to have Joe back on the podcast to share about this impactful research and how it can empower parents to frankly pay for this costly uh, service that they're providing, providing to their children and trying to do so to help them and their families. So welcome again, Joe. Thanks very much for having me, Andy. I'm pleased to be here and um, look forward to our conversation. Great. So without having, uh, without going through the entire uh, background, can you just tell us from where we left off, um, just kind of um, your engagement um, since your family was successful with that pursuit uh, and, and you know, why it's fueled your passion to continue to pursue um, changes in legislation and awareness and all the rest. Sure. So uh, as, as you uh, rightly summarized, um, you know, our, uh, our daughter was in um, uh, wilderness and residential treatment. And um, not too long after she first left, I had the, the really the good luck to have a friend of mine say, by the way, you should be thinking about insurance, which at that point was the last thing I was thinking about. And he said, just do your homework and, uh, and get ready. And so what you summarized is quite true and, and encapsulates 
you know, many years of hard work um, that ultimately led to a successful outcome in federal court against our insurance company. What I learned from that activity was that um, uh, in, insurance companies um, have a, uh, a strategy, either either purposeful or otherwise, uh, that says, we'll wait you out, we'll, we'll deny you. Um, and, um, uh, and most people, most parents certainly of, of, uh, of youth that are in residential programs have got too much on their mind to, to try to do anything other than take no for an answer and, and just uh, um, uh, ex accept that as the final answer. Right. One learned, of the one of the things that you shared, I think, last time was was two things. One is insurance companies aren't designed to pay out as much as possible, right? They're in a profit mode themselves, so so you know if they can pay out less and still serve their customers, that's kind of their mo. And the second thing you had shared, I think, is mental health is a little amorphous. You you had shared something to the effect that if someone breaks a wrist. A doctor knows they know exactly what to cover and how much it costs. Whereas with mental health, that's not the case. Is, were those two things accurate? So they they are accurate. I would say um, uh, you know that maybe I can add a little bit of uh, of color commentary. Yeah. Um, what I'm what I'm um, appreciating over time from I'll say a, a little bit of more. It's more reading that I've done. Not I wouldn't call it research, but more organizations involved in. Um, in how insurance companies treat mental health claims are coming to the conclusion and publishing results that say, undercovering mental health costs insurance companies more than paying those claims. So uh, Milliman is, a, is a, a, a company that's very active in this space and they've published some really interesting findings that, that um, um, that uh, assert that um, individuals who are denied mental health care, either for mental health or for substance use addiction issues, um, consume far more physical health uh, insurance benefits um, than if they were treated. And that the, the economic decision that you describe which is, uh, which is, by the way, certainly how some insurance companies behave, um, is not, it's not only not in their um, insured's best interest, their customer's best interest, it's not obvious at all that it's in their interest either. They are probably making an economic mistake, but it's a mistake that they deal with. And as parents, um, you and I, and, and I think the, the, uh, the viewers of your uh, of your uh, of your podcast are also on the short end of that of that uh, short-sighted decision. Uh, sounds so like it sounds like part of it is they're not looking at the total cost of healthcare of an individual, and they're also looking at short-term versus a longer-term picture. Right. That's that's correct. And your your second point is uh, regarding mental health being less um, uh, less clear than say a broken arm. Is, is, is certainly also true, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in the context of medical necessity letters. Uh, um, uh, the, you know, the question of what is depression, what is anxiety, what is major depression, these are all uh, what, you know, what treatment is in fact um, appropriate for a given uh, 
child or adult for that matter, uh, today or tomorrow. Uh, you know, these are all you know much more complex questions than say uh, for a broken arm. Um, no, no, no doubt about it. And that that leaves a lot of leeway for insurance companies to say. Um, you know, that treatment just doesn't look like something we should cover. And so we're not going to. Okay. So I, I um, we've gone a little tangential here for good purpose and for good reason to clarify some things, but what I wanted to know, what I wanted to know and, and, and have our listeners know is, you know, you could have just walked away and said, you know, okay, I, I, I fought the system and I won, I got my money. Um, I've learned some things and uh and moved on but you've taken it as kind of a passion play to help really change the industry um gotten involved in the kennedy form involved in all this research um why and i'm grateful that you've done it (laughs) well you know um uh i was um you know i was really lucky as i mentioned uh earlier to have a friend tell me along the way um you know, you should expect to hear no, and, and it's not right. Um, and along the way, I had, um, you know, some really great, um, I'll say collaborators, uh, someone who helped with our insurance filings and appeal, um, uh, a, a litigation team that was absolutely terrific. Um, and and so I, what I came to learn is that our situation was, um, I'll say both common and unusual. What was common was we were denied care that was necessary for uh, for our family. Uh, that's common. What was unusual was that we said, you know, that's not that's not fair. That's not what the law is. That's not the insurance contract that I that I pay premiums on. Um, and uh, as our, you know, at some level, uh, I took it as a uh, you know as a bit of a mission that. Uh, um, you know, after we were successful with our, our lawsuit, and I say that so casually, but as I said, it was an awful lot of work. I thought, you know, um, if I can help uh, others to avoid what I had to go through and what our daughter had to go through in terms of, uh, uh, you know, she, was, she wasn't aware of, of how precarious things would be, but uh, um, she told us stories of uh, kids who were in her programs. Um, whose parents ran out of money uh, because their insurance companies wouldn't pay. Um, And I've heard her tell this story uh, eloquently and and it's awfully sad because the outcomes are horrible. And I just took that as as an impetus to to not sit on this information. And uh, as you mentioned, I've gotten involved with the Kennedy Forum. That's an organization that is uh, committed to destigmatizing mental health and providing improvements to access. And so I found, I'll say, like-minded folks committed to doing things on a, to, to, to do things on a big scale. Um, and it's just been really invigorating for me. Excellent. Well, one of the things I've encountered in talking to a lot of these folks who run these programs is, is it's expensive to run these programs, so they need to charge. <laughs> And, and, uh, and so some of them actually form nonprofits and raise money. So, because there are a lot of people who can't even consider sending their kids to one of these programs or, or, 
or, uh, you know, to get help um, sure. as opposed to, um, you know, running out of money when they do so or figuring out a way to make it work. So, yeah. um, so your, your, um, your success set some precedent and some good learnings and uh, the ongoing work is unbelievably valuable. Um, so, um, so to refresh our listeners, I wanted to just um, remind people that we, you did share this 10 steps to securing insurance coverage for mental health care. And I'll share the link again to that. Um, I, I just wanted to um, just go over a couple of those again to refresh people. And, and, and I, I kind of focused on three. Um, one that we're really going to be focusing on today is called the medical necessity letter. Get that. So we'll talk about that in most of our talk today. But you also talked about taking detailed notes and being proactive about it and knowing your rights under the federal and state law. Can you kind of remind us um, what those are about and why they're important? Because I think the three of them together kind of um, um, are really important. Right. So let me cover them in reverse order. Go um, for it. So the, um, the federal legislation that is, I'll say, most relevant or certainly highly relevant to this whole discussion was a federal law passed in 2008. Uh, Patrick Kennedy uh, was in uh, Congress at that time and, and that, that's really his, I'll say, crowning legislative achievement. Uh, I would summarize that law as, as this, mental health should be treated the same as physical health, period. Um, so it turns out that the insurance companies didn't get the memo. They, they didn't um, start to treat mental health in a different way, and they certainly didn't treat, treat it the same as, uh, as physical health. Um, that's been 13 years. So what's happened in the intervening years? Uh, a few things. Uh, first of all, most states have passed laws that incorporate the, the same, I'll say, features of the federal law uh, onto the books of, uh, of state law. So that reinforces the federal law. Um, the way I think about it, I'm not, a, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a legislator, but the way I think about it, it's providing one more tool in the, um, you know, sort of in the, uh, in the toolbox for folks like us to say to the insurance company, you have to treat these claims the same as physical health. So you have to, you have to do that. Um, there, there are, um, a number of states, about 20 in the meantime, who have passed laws that require insurance companies to report on their progress. So that's, that's not a perfect uh, uh, mechanism, but it is a mechanism where insurance companies are obliged on an annual basis to report to the insurance commission of their state sort of how they're doing. Um, uh, so it's a, it's a way where if, if they look bad or if they don't file, which by the way happens, um, they are subject to enforcement action by the state insurance commissioners. So that's again, one more tool that's all trying to accomplish what the 2008 law uh, put in place. Um, more recently, three states have put laws on the books that say medical necessity. So actually using clinical standards that are standard to uh, to practicing psychiatrists, psychologists, and other clinicians must be used to, to assess claims. 
So three states. Is that there. California and Oregon and Illinois? Are those the three states? Yes, sir. Those are the three states. And Illinois just happened, right? So Illinois' law was passed was uh, was passed about six or eight weeks ago, and the governor signed it into law last week. Yeah. Um, so that's so good news. It's it's very good news, and and I hope that other states will uh, will follow. That's one thing the Kennedy Forum is very active in doing is trying to promote laws that are emerging in you know in in I'll say states that are taking the lead to then uh, continue to roll that out in other jurisdictions. So how do people keep track of all of this stuff? Because it's about knowing your rights. You shared with us kind of the, you know, the history of, of how things have changed for the good, but right. they're, they'll continue to change, right? Sure. So there's a website that's hosted by the Kennedy Forum called www.parityregistry.org. P-A-R-I-T-Y-R-E-G-I-S-T-R-Y.org. Um, that's one place that you can search by state um, for information about what the laws are. I would say this, though, um, uh, with the exception of, you know, some of your listeners who might be really ambitious uh, would-be lawyers, um, the most important thing to know is that the law is on your side, period. The, law, the federal law is on your side. Virtually all states, the law is on your side. And insurance companies are facing lawsuits to hold them to account. Um, and, and attorneys general in states like New York and Pennsylvania are holding insurance companies to account. And it becomes increasingly challenging, maybe not painful enough just yet, for insurance companies to ignore, uh, ignore the law. Um, Interesting. I guess, I guess with wilderness therapy and residential treatment, it's one category and that's the, the focus of this audience, but given the mental health um, exposure uh, and, and understanding and recognition people are getting given what's happened with COVID. Right. It's becoming that much more transparent and 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 need to be covered and need to be addressed, right? That's, that, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Okay. So tell us about taking detailed notes and why that's so important and when you should do that. Right. So uh, insurance companies uh, are um, receiving detailed, uh, documents related to care uh, that take the form of claims. So it's a clinician performing certain services or an institution, say a residential treatment program providing certain services, and the insurance company receives that documentation. And it's quite possible in the course of these, I'll say, more unusual and more complex um, uh, claims that you might get uh, a denial or a claim might be uh, delayed, and you might have uh, questions with uh, with a customer service rep, for example, or you might receive a call from a from a customer service rep um, that's inquiring about uh, about a particular uh, bit of care. Um, it is 
important to document those, those interactions um, for your own records because the insurance company is gonna do so for sure. And so if they are asking you questions about the, uh, the course of treatment, it's important for you to know who you talk to, what their ID number is, what the date of the call was, what the substance of the call was, and I'll say by, by implication, what the substance of the call wasn't. And the reason I say wasn't is uh, in our own situation, which may or may not be repeated ever again, but you never know. Um, I had detailed notes about certain conversations I had with a customer service rep. And in the course of the, of the appeal and ultimately in the litigation, the insurance company said, well, here's our notes from this call. And the notes were not the same. Um, I had detailed notes that said I was told one thing and they said that they were, they had told me something that was different. Um, and without that, without that uh, documentation, um, it would have been my memory versus, uh, versus theirs. And so having those detailed notes was turned out to be quite, uh, you know, quite helpful. Would it be fair to say if you didn't have those detailed notes and detailed records, you would not have been successful? That is for sure the case. Okay. By the way, the treatment centers that at least that we worked with, and I'm guessing that most, uh, most of your listeners also work with, it turns out they take detailed notes when they're talking to the insurance companies also. So they're, and, and that's something I would have never known uh, if we hadn't had the problem with the, uh, our claims being paid. But I, I called uh, uh, the therapist at the residential treatment center and said, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to piece together some information. And she said, well, why don't I just send you my call log? And I, I was shocked and delighted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So let's dig into the medical necessity letter itself and, and tell me if I'm wrong with that premise that, because I've spoken to some um, providers of programs who are aware of it, but I certainly wasn't aware of it when I was going through the process and nobody told me about it. And I don't think, I, th I think it's provided if properly asked for. I don't know if a whole lot of programs say, hey, you know, you may want to consider this. So can you clarify that? And then, and then just tell me, you know, about your research here and and obviously what it does ultimately is is read the article talks about you know the the research that was done but ultimately gives you a template to be right. actually to 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 use um when you're when you're creating that medical necessity letter which creates the understanding up front that this mental health is medically necessary so that there's no question further downstream right so right. can you tell us about the, the nature of the research sure. and the article and the actual um, tool? Sure. Well, let me, let me first admit that I found this out by accident. So I was working with um, the company that helped us with our um, appeal to the insurance company. And they asked for all this documentation. And I was thinking about the, the arguments that would be made. And it occurred to me that the voice that was conspicuously missing was the voice of our daughter's psychiatrist. Because as much as we had records of when she had an appointment, I didn't have any record from that or any, I didn't have his voice saying, 
this is the right treatment that that she needs based on my experience. And so I um, uh, so I wrote a letter from him to the insurance company, and I called him up and said, um, I've drafted a letter for your consideration. Uh, I've tried to write it from your perspective, but I'm sure I didn't get your voice right. Um, and I'm wondering if you would look at it and modify it as you see fit so that it tells the story from your perspective, but I've at least tried to, to give it a try. And he said he'd be happy to do that. And he made a few very small changes, signed the letter and provided it. Uh, we also had, I did the same thing with the education educational consultant who'd helped uh, place our daughter in wilderness. Same idea. And it turned out that, uh, that those two letters turned out to be crucial in the litigation. So it was really by accident. What I've, what, what I've come to learn is that there are some clinicians who are familiar with medical necessity letters. It's very few. Um, and that's really what um, you know, what motivated me to, to do the research and to, to write the article that, uh, that prompted us to have this, uh, this conversation today. Um, um, the conclusion that I came to is clinicians need to be taught why medical, sort of that, first of all, that medical necessity letters are, are a tool that they can provide their, their patients. It's a gift that they can use for their, to their, with their insurance companies. The way I've described it in the article is instead of saying to their patients, good luck with the insurance company, it's gonna be really hard and you probably won't get coverage. Uh, clinicians can say, I've prepared this medical necessity letter. This should be a tool that helps you get the coverage that you paid for, for, for treatment that is medically necessary. And so the article teaches the background of why a letter like this is important. And it also explains in a very, I'll say workmanlike way, the key elements of such a letter. And it provides a template for that letter so that a, a clinician uh, um, can, uh, I'll say, fill in the blanks uh, along the way. Um, and that, uh, uh, you know, my, I would say my, my hope for the letter, my, my vision for this is that these letters become standard of care. It becomes as routine as here's a reminder for your next appointment and here's your medical necessity letter. Uh, we'll see you next week. Great. So for our listeners, we will have a link to this article with the medical necessity template in the show notes. Um, and, um, and it's a terrific piece of work uh, to be used. Can you give us some of the tactics in terms of um, who it should be given to? Um, you gave us a couple of examples, but give us the, the full spectrum. And then who is it sent to and when? So right. is it just something you have in your toolbox and you kind of file it away? And then when you get rejected from your insurance and you appeal it, you use it? Or are you more proactive and send it to them before anything happens? Right. So um, I'll tell you how I think about it. Um, I, I would have to um, caution that I'm not a lawyer and I'm not an expert in any individual insurance uh, policy. So, so my 
um, my guidance may not be appropriate in every, in every case. Um, having said that, my point of view, and this has been validated as a, I'll say, directionally suitable approach. I've validated this with uh, Mark Dabowski, who is, uh, who's been a guest on your, on your podcast. He and has. Also, yep. He's also a co-author of the article. Yep. Is that a, a medical necessity letter could be submitted with the initial claim for insurance coverage. So, so for the initial claim or for pre-authorization? Um, so that is a, that's a, a great question. I would say um, if it were available, probably at the same time as pre-authorization, uh, there are certainly cases where uh, a decision to uh, to place someone in a right in a the timing might not work out that well. It'd yeah. be tough. I I would never I would never want to stand in the way of of having urgent care delivered, and sometimes sometimes uh, pre authorizations can do that. I, I certainly wouldn't want to stand in the way there. Right. But Point I would, well I would, taken. But I would say I would say at the earliest possible time to uh, to include that letter in the correspondence with the insurance company. I mean, the, the, the idea, you know, going back to, to my, I'll say, accidental discovery is it's the physician's voice that needs to be heard, right? So if, the, if you're, as, a, as a, a, a policyholder submitting a claim, it's sort of you against the insurance company. And I think of a medical necessity letter as bringing the clinician along who is saying, this treatment is medically necessary and, and therefore it should be paid period. So that's, that's, that's a voice that you want to have in the conversation as early as possible. Does the burden of proof fall on the, the clinician or the doctor to connect mental health to a medical necessity? Well, I would say, of course, in, in, in this respect, the medical necessity letter is um, uh, as formulated in this article, and it was formulated with help from not just Mark Dabowski, who's a litigator, but crucially from Dr. Eric Plakin, who runs the Austin Riggs Center, which is a residential program in Western Massachusetts. And he has deep experience with insurance um, denials, and he was an expert witness in the most consequential lawsuit that was won against United Behavioral Health. So he is, um, you know, his, his expertise is uh, present throughout this article. And the, the, you know, the question of, medic, of the medical treatment and medical necessity, they really go hand in hand, right? So if a, if a psychiatrist is making a decision about what sort of treatment is necessary, it's based on their expertise. It's based on their interaction with a particular patient. It's based on the literature that they might be familiar with that either says treatment A is the right treatment or treatment B is the right treatment or some, some combination of those. Um, and it's this physician's uh, judgment about what's right. And, and so you, you, know, you could say, or let's say you could think about it this way, the treatment that a psychiatrist or a psychologist is providing should be, by definition, what they think is the right course of treatment. Right. That is to say, it's the it is the 
it's the treatment that's medically necessary, right? And so the letter is, is in a way only documenting their thought process that, that has already taken place. Got it. Excellent. So, so it should be, should be no additional thinking. It's probably a little bit more work, but it should be no more thinking. It should be just documenting what, what the clinician had in mind all along. Yeah. My view is it's less work because it's creating less work downstream. If you do the work up front, right? That is the idea. Yeah. That's sure. the idea. Right. For sure. So, um, so again, I, I will post the link. I suggest uh, to all our listeners that they take a good read and and use it uh, if they if they're at a point where they can. Certainly, be aware of it. Look at the article about the ten steps uh, for sure because it covers all different areas, not just medical necessity. We just went deeper onto that one uh, uh, area or item today, and um, and. I guess uh, what's next on the horizon in this area for you and for the Kennedy Forum? Well, so this this article really um, uh, provides a foundation for, I think, a totally different conversation with clinicians and with patients. I mean, I think of this, and so we're so Kennedy Forum together with Austin Riggs. Um, we are thinking about how we how we put this information, how we put this article and these ideas in the hands of as many people uh, as possible who will be able to use it. Right. So, so there are we're we're reaching out to literally it creates dozens. some pressure. It creates some pressure from the right. Right. It's well. It's creating it's creating pressure. It's also creating, I'll say, familiarity. So the idea that this should just be routine and not exceptional is the goal. And so we're, we're looking for ways to get this in front of as many professional, professional clinicians, professional organizations as possible. Um, we're looking to get this in front of as many uh, treatment facilities as possible. Um, and frankly, also, you know, my hope is that for some of your listeners, it might make sense for them to, uh, to take the path that I took. Um, so Andy, you talked earlier about the 10 steps and I, uh, you know, one of the steps was ask your doctor or psychiatrist counselor for a medical necessity letter. And, uh, so that's a really great idea. What I came to realize is, uh, if you, if for most people to do that, the clinician is going to say, I don't even know what you're talking about. Right. And make so, it easy for them. Make it easy for them. That could happen in one of two ways. You could provide them with a copy of this article. Um, by the way, the authors, the four co-authors, we, we pulled together um, and, um, and basically bought the rights of this article so that it wouldn't be behind a paywall. So typically journal articles like this uh, are behind a paywall and you have to- Oh, right, right. You have to be a subscriber. You have to be a subscriber. And we said to them, we want anybody that could want this ever to be able to access it, share it with their friends. And they- um, uh, so we cut a deal so that that would be possible. So you could hand a co copy of this letter or a copy of this article to uh, your clinician. The other thing you could do, if, and this might be for, I'll say, those that are uh, suitably motivated and, and as mad as I was, uh, you could write a letter, uh, you know, write a draft 
to help the to help the physician who's inclined to say this sounds this sounds like a lot of work. Um, I don't know if I have time for this. So I said, well, here's uh, you know here's the you know here's the draft you can take it home. Um, and the good news um, from Mark Dubofsky, and this doesn't come across as explicitly in the article um, because it just it wasn't quite appropriate, but he's told me that he has won several lawsuits, many lawsuits since he helped with ours that turned on, that is to say the decision was based on a medical necessity letter. And the, 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 the takeaway from that shouldn't be, gee, I'm gonna have to go to a, go to a federal lawsuit. That's not, the, um, that's not what I would want your, your, your listeners to believe because I think over time, the insurance companies are just gonna figure out, we don't wanna be sued all the time. You know, we don't want to have our name in the press the way United Behavioral Health has been with the, the WIT decision, which is referred to in the article. Right. Uh, the state of New York has taken them to task in a big right. way. It's just not good for business. Right. And it's, it's costly for them to have to defend themselves. Right. And it's just wrong. I mean, right. Let's go with wrong. It's economically wrong, but it's also they're treating their customers in a way that, that it's just not right. Okay. Great. So as we're wrapping up today, I want to remind people um, and ask Joe, can you please share your, you have any uh, specific email address for people who have any specific questions that they can address with you? Sure. It's uh, joe, J-O-E dot insurance dot parity, P-A-R-I-T-Y at gmail.com. And that, that email is also in the, um, uh, in the journal article um in the little section that has a profile on the authors all right you've you've wanted to help so many people and have such an impact that you created your own email address just to be contacted in that way it's awesome so um thanks again joe it's great to have you on the show again thank you for all you've done and all you'll continue to do um this is so helpful the financial part of this uh this journey is 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 immense and so uh and the need uh, you know for medical help for mental health <laughs> is paramount and so um you know this movement is is an important movement and having the right tools to be able to address it is so so incredible so thank you so much well you're you're absolutely welcome and thank thank you andy for all all you do to um to remind, uh, remind people that they're not alone, um, that uh, others have gone down a, gone a path that's probably similar enough to them that they can learn. And, and uh, what you're doing is, uh, is, is a huge gift as, as well. And uh, thank you for that. Thank you. It's a labor of love. Next episode, we'll be speaking with Dory Francis about parents of adopted children. It's really kind of a unique episode focused on the unique needs of uh, parents who have adopted children who may be battling some mental illness. I look forward to being able to share this valuable information that Dory will be presenting in our next episode. In the meantime, parents, remember, take care of your children and empower yourself with information at Parents Journey.